0: The reading this morning is from 1st Peter chapter 3 verses 13 through 17. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Dear Lord, I just thank you uh, for the opportunity that we can all be here to gather this morning. Just thank you for your word, um, just as a roadmap map for how we are to live our lives and just to point us uh, towards you more and more. I thank you for your son, uh, just as a perfect example of how we are to live and ultimately as a perfect sacrifice. Um, to give us hope of an eternal salvation and and hope in the in, in our current lives through your Holy Spirit. So I just pray that you'd uh, bless Aaron as he comes up and the words that he speaks. And I just pray that uh, you would help us to be receptive to your Word um, that we may may hear it and respond this morning. So in your your Word we pray, Amen.
1: Well, good morning. Good morning, I have a quick poll, I wasn't planning on this, but as you see these chairs were left here from the, the way that they are organized from the Young's vow renewal yesterday. Do we like them this way? Is anybody opposed to that? We're going to be really congregational here in New England. Alright, I guess they'll have to stay. Good idea Tyler and Leslie. <laughs> Well, last week, or I think two weeks ago, Kristen made some bread. She made focaccia for our family. She made it twice. Two separate, different recipes. And she asked me which one was my favorite. And of course, I was strategic and I said, well maybe you should make both of them again at the same time and we can taste test them and I will let you know. Well, baking bread requires specific instructions. Focaccia has its own recipe. A French loaf is different. Sourdough, if you like that, I don't, has a different recipe. And you can easily mess up bread if you don't follow the instructions or the proper procedures and know what you're doing. In our text this morning, we will see a recipe that God uses for a great purpose. He has other recipes. This is just one of them. And He uses it today, as we'll see in our text, for the church, for His church. And so, friends, we are made to glorify God, and that's where we find our greatest joy. And that's the goal. How we get there will come about in many different ways. In Ezra 5 and 6, we will see three ingredients. We will see courageous leaders, humble service, and a gracious King. And God will use these three ingredients to accomplish the end of his glory and his people's joy. So would you pray with me? And we'll be in Ezra 5 and 6 this morning. Father, thank you for being sovereign, for being good, for being loving, for being purposeful in the things that you do uh, in the world uh, for your glory and for our joy. And so, God, we ask that you would be with us as we open up your word in uh, the book of Ezra this morning, God, that you would show us marvelous things, that we would worship you, love you, follow you with all of our hearts, soul, mind, and strength and give you the glory that you deserve, which in turn is what gives us our greatest amount of joy. So we ask you'd be honored in Jesus' name, amen. We have a lot of scripture this morning with two chapters, and we will read almost all of it. So we will start in verse 1 of Ezra chapter 5. We will just look at each section and we break it down and apply it towards the end. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem, in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were there with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tatani, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar bazani and their associates came to them, and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house, and finish this structure? They also asked them, what are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by by letter concerning it. So, we'll stop there. So, our text begins, the first ingredient is courageous leaders. We have prophets named first, Haggai and Zechariah, both authors of Old Testament prophetic books. They are proclaimers of God's truth. They declare to God's people, this is the way that you are to go. If you are going this way, change direction and go this way, calling God's people to repentance like a preacher does. Haggai and Zechariah, like I said, they both write Old Testament prophetic books. They both call God's people to do certain things, to do something in relation in those books to this temple reconstruction. Where Haggai calls the people to dedicate themselves to the work of building the temple. If you were here a couple years ago, Tyler preached uh, a series on the book of Haggai. Zechariah, he not only calls the people to build, but he says to look forward, not just to the temple that is to be constructed, but to the things that God promises after the temple is to be built, the things that point to Jesus. So, we have prophets. We also have a governor, otherwise known as a king, someone who's ruling and reigning over this area of Judea in Jerusalem. His name is Zerubbabel. He's in the kingly line of David, but also of Jesus, as we talked about a few weeks ago. He's the civic leader, ruling, reigning, organizing, overseeing all of this construction as the Jews are working. So, you have a prophet, you have a king, and you also have a third prophet type of person, a priest. Jeshua, where priests, they intercede for God's people. The priests are the ones who make the sacrifices for God's people in the temple. And so you have prophets, a priest, and a king, courageous preaching, fearless administration, and stalwart care for God's people as they move forward in the building of this temple. And as you see the text transition, they are approached by people of the land. This guy named Tatanai. What are you doing? Who said you can do this? Who's in charge here? Because any large-scale construction during this period of time, an area that's ruled by the Persians, could potentially be some sort of rebellion that is taking place. So they're just checking in. Is there going to be political unrest that comes about because of this temple construction? Where we saw last week that the work stopped. But clearly, as we see today, it wasn't forever. And the narrator tells us who's running the show. Look at verse 5. They don't answer the question, but verse 5 reminds us, "...the eye of God was upon them." They didn't pull out a copy of the Constitution. They didn't call their attorneys and say, we want to appeal to the judge. They kept working. God is the one with the authority, and God is the one who is judged. Remember, as we saw, God stirred within Cyrus to send the people back. He stirred within the people to go back. And they build this temple in the face of their adversaries. God's first ingredient is courageous leaders. I got permission for this story. It involves one of my children, so I try to ask for permission before I share it. So when Wesley was about two years old, we were finishing up a church service, and like we do here, we were standing in the back of the building, and I was chatting with someone, and I see two-year-old Wesley walking straight for the fire alarm with his hand like this. If you know Wesley, I started running. I could not catch him. He pulled the fire alarm, everything went off, nobody knew how to turn off the fire alarm, and of course, because it's tied to a system, guess who shows up? The firemen. When the firemen came into the building, they turned off the alarm, because they knew how to do it, and they said, what happened, and who's in charge? Courageous leaders lead. But I, cowered behind, as all the fingers pointed to me, it was his son, and he's in charge." I think our lead pastor was actually gone that Sunday. I didn't want to lead, but I had to lead. I got a nice threat, because if they came back, the second time it would be very expensive for them to get the whole fire truck and the crew there to help us but in the face of adversity and uh, in the face of adversity courageous leaders lead the next ingredient is humble service we'll read the rest of chapter 5 this is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar I and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report, in which was written as follows, To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God, It is being built with huge stones, and timber is laid in its walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names for your information, that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us, We are servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are building, rebuilding the house that it was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished." But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt, and the gold and silver vessels of the house of God which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon. These Cyrus, took, Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon and they were delivered to those whose name was Shespazar, who had, we had made, whom he had made governor. And he said to them, "'Take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site.' Then Shespazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and from that time until now it has been in building, and it is not yet finished." Therefore, it seems good to the king to let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem and let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. So not recorded in the first ingredient, we see the response to the inquisitors. Who said you could do this? Who is in charge here? We are servants of the God of heaven and of earth. The response, led by courageous leaders, is humble service in the midst of adversity. The work is progressing. Huge stones are laid. Massive timbers are being set. The eye of God is continuing to be upon them. And God graciously gives them success. Their courageous prophets, priests, and king are lovingly leading the people in humble service and steadfast work of God. The Jews who returned to Jerusalem were just humble servants. You don't, they don't list out their qualifications. They don't list out all the things that they accomplished. And they even expand on their humility, acknowledging their prior heirs. We did some egregious things to God in the past, they say. In verse 12, it reiterates their disobedience to God. Why they were in Babylon to begin with. Because they did not keep their end of the covenant. But God's eye was always upon them, allowing them to return, allowing them to build the temple. They don't deserve to be there, hence their humility. And God's hand is all over this situation where Cyrus called God's people to return. Cyrus generously gave them back what had been taken. God protected them while building This is a gift as well. Progress in the building is a gift for them, too. Everything they have is a gift of God. Receiving so much, their only response is that of humility. And Tadni, he isn't even being hostile to this. He just wants to cover his bases. Are they allowed to do this, King Darius? And God is making. He's stirring again. Where courageous leaders and humble service is now going to be mixed with a generous king to bring about the end for which God's people truly long for. Well, let's pick back up in chapter 6, starting in verse 6. Now therefore, Tat and I, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shetharbaz and I and your associates, the governor who were in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its sight. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews, for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full, without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river, and whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the prophets at Jerusalem require. Let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven, and pray for the life of the kings and his sons. Also I make a decree, that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of the house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who caused his name to dwell there overflow, overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this, or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. And so the leaders are courageous. God's people are humble. And Darius finds what is written by Cyrus. And then Darius reiterates the commission. Go build the temple. Let huge stones be laid. Let strong timbers be set upon them. And graciously, because those things are not cheap even in those days, let it be covered by the royal treasury. The eye of God is cooking. Courageous leaders humble service, and a gracious king to make something beautiful. Darius says, leave them alone. Let them rebuild. Even pray for them. Darius had a special interest in restoring religious places of worship throughout his kingdom. His territory that he reigned over was massive, from Turkey all the way into India, all the way down south into southern, or the middle parts of India, all the way up to almost into what would be today Russia. That's a large area. And to keep the natives happy throughout His territory, He let them reconstruct and construct places of worship to their gods. By giving them freedom, He maintained peace within His sovereign rule. The Romans as well did this during the days of Jesus, where they still had this temple that is being rebuilt. Kind of like many today, want to be just left alone, to do what they want to do. Darius says, don't mess with the Jews. Let them worship. If you do, the threat is significant, we see in verse 11, because God's eye is on the entire situation. In verse 12, Darius knows the end goal. He says, may God dwell in Jerusalem and protect His people, where courageous leaders, humble service, and a gracious king have set the stage for God's ultimate purpose, the end for which the entire world was created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Let's continue in Ezra 6, verse 13. Then according to the words sent by Darius the king, Tatani the governor, and the province beyond the river, Shethir-Baz and I and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet, and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel, and by decree of Cyrus, and Darius, and Artaxerxes king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, and the sixth year in the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of the house of God a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred lambs and a sin offering for all all Israel twelve male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem as it is written in the book of Moses. God's people prospered. In verse 14, it lists kings who helped Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes. But whose name is first? It's the king of the universe. God's eye has always been on his people. I'll read it again. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of those other kings. God is first in the list for a reason, because God is the one who has ultimate authority. God is that gracious king. Jonathan Edwards is a New England pastor from Massachusetts and I've been reading up a little bit on him, trying to understand where I live a little bit better and the history of the churches. And he wrote an essay called, The End for Which God Created the World. In his essay, Edwards says, the reason God created the world was not our happiness, but the magnification of God's name. God's glory is ultimate. And since happiness comes from God, true happiness comes from beholding God in His glory. And the place where God's glory used to dwell with His people is in the temple. It brought them joy when it was completed, as we see in our text. And so friends, we find our true joy in glorifying God. It's what we were created to do. But a great chasm still lay between us and God, between these Jews and the God in which they worship. And that's why there is a temple, for sacrificing for sin. And a lot of animals were sacrificed that day, ending with the Passover celebration, as we see as we finish out chapter six. Over the 14, On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had furnished themselves together, and all of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by every one of them who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanliness of the peoples in the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful, and had turned the heart of the King of Assyria to them, so that He aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel." So before I moved to New England, I always thought that reenactments were a quirky thing that you would see on a TV show, of people uh, would go reenact like a battle. Well, it's not so here. New Englanders love their history. Vermonters love their history. Reenactments help people to remember what took place, and to teach others what happened as we move forward. The Passover was Israel's most sacred festival. It was a commemoration of God's eye on the people when His people left Egypt under the authority of Pharaoh, and they left with Moses. God had a different recipe then with Moses, but the goal was the same. Israel sacrificed the lamb during the first Exodus to protect them from the death and destruction that would come to Egypt. Ezra and Nehemiah is a reenactment of the Exodus where God's people are returning from exile for their promised inheritance. And even those who were not Jewish participate. Did you see that in the text? And they worship. Some of the people of the land cleansed themselves and joined in the worship in verse 21. God has done His work. He has prepared a recipe in Ezra 5 and 6. This isn't His only recipe, but the result is God's glory, joy for His people, and welcoming in those who were not His people to become part of His people and worship Him. So considering what God is doing here, what is He making? How is His eye upon us? And so I have four things that I want us to consider in the days ahead for us as Cornerstone Church. First and foremost, trust God. God is sovereign, His eye has always been on His people. He didn't send them to exile and close the door. Forget those guys. They keep sinning against me. His promises depend on His character, not our actions in response. And so church, we can trust God. We start there. Because He is gracious. And He is an all-powerful King. So I have a question. Do you trust Him? Do you trust Him not only when things go well, which is kind of easy, But you trust Him when things become difficult? When I get busy, I get stressed. When I get stressed, I become agitated. When I get agitated, I become angry. It's easy to not get angry when things are going well, when I don't have a lot of things pushing in upon me. But our hearts are laid on the table when things don't go well, aren't they? And so when we don't trust God, our hearts reveal what's truly in there and so when life falls apart what does your heart reveal about your trust of God do you go to food or drink do you flirt with that person in the office because you're not getting the love and affection that you feel like you should have at home do you put more stuff on credit because you want more stuff to fulfill the needs that you're not satisfied with or do you escape to a fake world of TV or social media because real world is hard how would God answer those questions on your behalf? I think we should consider the hard stuff. C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So how might God might be waking you up to trust him? First, we trust God. Second, we believe in Jesus. When we don't trust God, Jesus is the only solution for that sin. <clears throat> Consider the prophets, priests and king, those courageous leaders that I talked about. Well, Jesus is the true prophet. He's the true priest. He's the true king. As prophet, Jesus pronounces an end to all our sin. When he died on the cross, he shouted out, It is finished. The wrath of God is satisfied. Our anger, our lust, our pride, our covetousness, our lack of trust, it is forgiven in Jesus. Jesus is the true prophet. As priest, he is the sacrifice. Priests mediated for God's people. They offered sacrifices for God's people. But Jesus, as priest, he sacrifices himself. Jesus is the final prophet. Passover lamb. The whole system of sacrifices that we see in the Old Testament it pointed to Jesus. Prophet, priest, but also king. He's king of kings. He's lord of lords. He sits at the right hand of the Father ruling and reigning over everything forever. And Jesus declares that sin no longer has dominion over us. That eye of God is his eye upon us. His hand is the one that is stirring within his church that he laid down his life for. He is protecting us. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. When we believe, He says we are His forever, and no one can snatch us out of His hand. And so, when we fail to trust God, Jesus says, I'll help you get there because I trusted on your behalf. Jesus is King. The Jews had to trust God's eye upon them, and they had ample proof. The system of sacrifices was temporary. It looked to Jesus, and that's the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so we believe in him as our second point. So the question do you? Not just in words, but in your heart. Where well, we know facts about him, but do you truly believe in him as substitution for your sin? Do you think you need to do more and keep the rules to be truly saved? He declared, it is finished, it is done. So do you think you have freedom to live life your way now that He has paid for those sins? He says, anyone would come after me to take up your cross, to follow me, and to die. Jesus frees us to trust God, but He also equips us to trust God by believing in Him. All we must do is believe. After this temple was completed, it was put to use, sacrificing for sin. Jesus is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And so first, we trust God. Second, we believe in Jesus. And third, be joyful. Often you see in churches with a high view of God's sovereignty and a high... Seriousness of sin, a bunch of curmudgeons. Ain't the way it used to be. I hate them folks that keep disobeying God. They aren't keeping the rules. But for us who have been forgiven much, we should have a lot of joy. We should be grateful for what God has done for us. And when we realize our sin, when we realize that it was that which put Jesus on the cross, we realize how much grace that we have been given, it should lead us to a lot of joy. Israel did in our text. They had great joy, it says. And so are you joyful. I'm not talking about happiness on the outside. Yeah, I put a smile on my face. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. It's not just put on a smile on your face when things don't go the way you want them to go. I don't like trials as much as anybody else. But God uses trials so that we would depend on Him. When we realize that we are not God, when we realize that everything that we have is a gift. And so if you're in a season of trial, consider it joy. Even if heaven is the only thing that you can look forward to. If you're in a season of victory, praise God. Consider it joy because you don't deserve it. Knowing that it's a gift of God that you have victory right now. Praise God that life maybe isn't more messed up than it could be. God's eye is on you. So the question, why do bad things happen to good people, is the wrong question. I think the question we should be asking is, why do good things happen to bad people? And joy is this inner contentment in what God has done and continues to do in and for His people And the Jews knew humbly all that God had done through them and was gracious to them and this brought them great joy when this temple was completed. And so trust God, believe in Jesus, be joyful. Fourth, tell others about it. Those curmudgeons also don't like to tell other people about Jesus. Say, oh, God's sovereign, I don't need to share the gospel. God will save them. Friends, we have the best news in the entire world. Why wouldn't we share it with others? We share all kinds of news with each other. We post it on Facebook. We share about the sports games. We say we got snow. I really wish it would go away. We share all kinds of news with each other. The nations came to worship God with God's people. When Jesus cleansed the temple, if you remember our time in John, He cleansed it because He said, they had made it into a den of robbers, when it was meant to be a house of prayer. Do you know what the verse is referencing to? I think it's in Isaiah. A house of prayer for the nations. Many suggest this time in, Israel, in of Israel, in Ezra, is one of the hardest seasons in the life of Israel. A cold, a ritualistic nation. Sound like the church? Maybe sound like our country? But trusting God, believing in Jesus, receiving joy, is anything but ritualistic. The nation risks everything to go back to Jerusalem. What may God have you risk? Since it's all a gift anyway. For the sake of others to participate in worshiping. God whom he created to worship just like you the Jews worked people came and asked them what are you doing remember our scripture reading as John read always be ready to make a defense of the hope that you have let's be the type of people that we live lives that people would ask us what are you doing why are you doing that Why do you get all gross and sweaty during VBS and run out on the field? Why do you give money to the church when you could just keep it for yourself? Why would you bring in that family during the holidays to have a meal with you? Why didn't you just have the meal with your family? Why would you send people away to start a new church when yours is just fine? Just grow it to be bigger and better. saw your car there on Wednesday again. You must be committed. The answer is, yes, we are committed. You want to come join us? Israel didn't hide. They blatantly gave themselves to the construction. When asked about the work, what would you do on Sunday? Or when asked at work, what would you do on Sunday? Where in the list does gathering with God's people end up? Is it number one? Or is it number 17 after you went to the transfer station? J.C. Ryle, a 19th century British excuse me, Bishop of Liverpool. He said this, If you love Christ, never be ashamed to let others see it and know it. Speak for Him. Witness for Him. Live for Him. God cooks a recipe. Courageous leaders, humble service, and a gracious King, God Himself, to accomplish great things. We will need more courageous leaders and humble service and the grace of our God to accomplish the things that we sense God is calling us to. But God promises that He will be with us. His eye will be upon us to bring Himself glory, most importantly, but also to bring us joy. It's worth it, so trust God believe in Jesus, be joyful, tell other peoples around it, about it. The only constant in all of God's recipes whenever you look at the scripture is God Himself to build His people, to bring Himself glory, and to bring His people joy through His gospel. It's all about God and what He does for Himself. Peter says this earlier on in his first letter, Though you have not seen Him, you love him. Though you do not see him, do not sorry, though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your salvation. Of the sorry, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so friends, let's trust God with the fruit. Let's rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. We'll do that even now as we sing songs. We have obtained the outcome of our faith, which is our salvation. And we can invite other people to come join our family. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for sending your Son die in our place on the cross for our sins God we thank you that your promises are sure they never return void Father we thank you for keeping your covenants with your people and your promises when we don't on our own or we fail to God we thank you for sending your son to pay the penalty for our sin where our sin was put upon Him on the cross, our sins past, present, and future, and by believing in Him that we receive eternal life, a life that doesn't perish, the best quality of life that you put upon us, holiness. That you no longer look at us as sinful men and women, you look at us as your beloved son or daughter with whom you are well pleased. And God, we thank you that that brings us great joy. And God, we want to worship you for your abundant grace and mercy towards us. God, we thank you for forgiving us when we don't have joy, when we focus too much on ourselves and forget your gracious hand upon us. God, we thank you that you've sent your son to die for those sins as well. And so God, we ask that you would help us to boldly declare to each other but also to the world around us who you are and what you've done trusting that that is the only way of salvation that we've believed but the world around us could believe as well. So God, we thank you for your abundant mercy for the example that you put in this word this morning of courageous leaders and humble service in your gracious hand. And so God, we ask that you would help us to give you the glory that you deserve as we finish out our time this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.